Hello there and welcome to episode 103 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. I travelled across the globe. I uh, I went to... Um, hang on a second, let me do this again. I travelled across the globe. I went to the de- most devilish of locations. I went to the uh, the mansion of the Ram. I travelled through the Hellfire Clubs. I went to... Uh, even stopped off at William Westerfield House. And eventually I had to do a devilish Enochian ritual and bring him back to, from the... Uh, devilish doesn't make sense at all because it's an angelic ritual but anyway (laughs) well in its own way yeah yeah i suppose it has devilish elements from from the (laughs) the the screaming abyss of of yeah that was gonna be my wilderness well i i i am the voice exactly i am the voice in the wilderness right we're sitting now's own koronzon has rejoined us (laughs) voice in the wilderness and here i am mark satir is back yes that's right yes yes thank you very much anyway after i think a fairly protracted absence looking at our show desk you've you've been on for a while but uh how have you been anyway fine absolutely fine yes excellent excellent i've been mentioned i mentioned it in the last two shows but we've actually now launched our patreon it's at patreon.com forward slash sitting now and we've released the first episode of the greenfield files uh which is uh which went very well and it's already been enjoyed by by patreons but i i foolishly forgot to mention it on the audio version so yes it's patreon.com forward slash sitting now and you'll get access to shows early you'll get the greenfield files uh, once a month uh, access to the discord server which is already uh, uh in in full swing there's, there's conversations going on there it's a it's a good time um but yeah it's uh, five dollars a month which i think is pretty reasonable and we're planning to put other content out for it not just the greenfield files but we're starting with the greenfield files and sort of uh, testing to see what you guys want so uh, it's exciting stuff i mean i'm uh you know I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying it already uh, and it, also, um, I'm going to get the socials out of the way now because I always forget to do them. Um, you can find us online at at Sitting Now, pretty much everywhere. Instagram, Facebook uh, is right where we're sitting now, and TikTok is Sitting Now official. But everywhere else is at Sitting Now. Anyway, who are we talking? Who are we talking to today, Mister Satir? Mister Andy Sharp, and uh, he's produced with Watkins. If you're familiar with London Cecil Court, the uh, the uh, the bookshop Watkins there one of the oldest occult bookshops is they've produced the Astral Geographic, which is a very um, seductively printed um, guide to all things um, esoteric, magical, um, weird and wonderful, and uh, of, of cultural and uh, historical and um, geographic interest. And uh, his own experiences some of his own experiences places his visit or we recommend and uh, it's one of those books where you really want to sort of go into the world and explore yeah it seems to be a a theme with his work doesn't it that he encourages the reader to go outside and uh, explore these kind of esoteric hotspots yeah the, the sort of psychology of the like the intersubjective nature of the uh, locations and uh, relationships we have with them yeah and it's a it's a very well put together book and it's very well mm. illustrated very uh it feels it's a book that feels good in the hand isn't it yeah not too big not too small and actually the the i i really liked the illustration they really do lend to it and mm. and they chime with the kind of ethos that uh, mr sharp is sort of aiming for i'm looking forward to this let's go and talk to andy sharp 
Hello, Andy Sharp. Welcome back to the show. It's good to see you again. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, great to great to see you again. Um, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Just uh, being busy promoting the new book. The new book, the Astral Geographic, the what the Watkins Guide to the Occult World. Um, yep. So, so what? drew you to write because the previous book was a kind of psychogeography kind of collection of of stuff you'd done on the web wasn't it it was or like fanzine style yeah, stuff, fanzines, yeah. yeah and this is yeah. this this feels uh like a bit of a departure from that um sort of. yeah so so um the english heritage collection was a it was an anthology of these kind of quite anarchic fanzines i've done over about 15 years and uh um it just provided a point of closure because the kind of I didn't I didn't have an archive or anything like that, so it was actually quite useful for me to to get this all in one place and you know close it off. So that did really well. And um, my publisher was a repeater, and a few months after that, that came out. Um, a commissioning editor from Watkins, who are repeater's parent company, got in touch with me. So it's it was an in-house job. So essentially, um, we had a conversation they enjoyed the book and then they were asking about um uh, would they be would i be interested in doing something for them um that was you know and they were saying well we do sort of pictures and colors and stuff like that so i had a you know we went through a few things and i suggested um um something uh, on the lines of uh of a the conceit of a travel guide um and uh, we went through a number of sort of different ideas, and I eventually agreed on a uh, came to the idea of doing a like a uh, a travel guide um, that sort of told the story of uh, magic um, through geography. Um, so I, I, I mean, there's different ways of telling um, the story of magic, and um, you know, uh, but I thought there was a you know, it's not the only telling of magic, but it's a very interesting one that you can do through geography, and that really came through the kind of some of the some of the stuff I've done with it, it, English Heretic, which is obviously largely occult psychogeography, but this was <clears throat> slightly less anarchic than that, really. You know, because um, uh, Watkins are a, a trade publisher, really. Um, so, so the agreement was I would do something that was. Um, that was uh, written in a, a slightly straighter style. Um, and um, I came up with the idea of exploring, as I said, exploring um, different uh, different facets of esotericism through geography and, and, and actually wanted to tell that in lots of different ways. So you, you got two aspects to that, really. You got like a terrain, if you like, like the gardens, deserts, stuff like that. And you've also got... Um, Form uh, like a uh, different esoteric practices like witchcraft and Satanism and alchemy and uh, tantra and things like that. So I thought uh, so tell that story in two different ways. Um, so whilst it's a you know from a personal point of view, um, I wanted to have a strong narrative arc there. So the the, the actual idea of a travel guide was uh, in my to to me is 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 a is a is a play with form conceit essentially you know um but uh, you know it was a compromise between doing something that people could read as a as a travel guide and my own personal desire to do something that had a strong narrative art there so play with form 
as I always have done with English Heretic. Um, so I think in the end it was a it was it was a regional compromise. Um, so yeah, so that's the that's the sort of uh, basis of it, um, really. It's a very appealingly uh, you know printed. I mean. I love the cover and, and the and the feeling. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got a yeah, definite fetish for books uh, and this sort of uh, 70s, 60s retro kind of feel to it. And I love the artwork inside. It's very, it's very seductive in that sense. And that's got like, a, um, that's very engaging. That's very uh, draws you in. Um, and and was that was that part of how much uh, influence did you have on the way it looked? I had. I pretty much had entire say on that because right. i knew exactly the way i wanted to do it I, I wanted to get away from this kind of like that sort of like you know that sort of horrible fancy art you get in the occult you know where it's like sort of you know there's some truly dreadful bit. occult co yeah. book covers aren't there like yeah and, <laughs> and content you know even books i really love like say you know say jan fry's books you know they're, they're always kind of sport by this kind of weirdly kind of sort of cheesy sort of art um and i and i wanted i also want to get away from that sort of over gothic way that the, the occult is done because i you know i always perceived the occult as quite psychedelic and very colorful and and i also wanted to jar the kind of heavy subject matter with something that was almost like um playful uh and the and the and the actual visual idea I had for it was 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 there at the beginning, and, and that was from the uh, shell guides to Britain. So these, you know, these shell guides that uh, came out from about the nineteen thirties to well, they're still going, I think, to a certain degree. They they, they were like county guides, and and, and the, the beginning of each chapter would have this kind of like annotated vignette, uh, annotated sort of uh, collage. Uh, illustrative collage of, of of the county, and they got very good artists in there to do it, like people like uh, Revilius and the Nash brothers and things like that. So, so that was very much straight from the outset. I wanted to do it like a shell guide. In actual fact, a few years ago, I'd, I'd done a, a two or three uh, sort of shell type tarot cards for a show involving um, uh, people like Dean Kenning and John Cussons and things like that. So I'd actually played with that form before. Um, but I got a guy called Nick Taylor in to do. He's a very good sort of psychedelic, hauntological, uh, retro um, illustrator. Does a lot of um, book covers and uh, record labels. And he actually did the the chapter um, uh, illustrations for the English Heritage Collection and the cover for English Heritage Collection. So I'd worked with him before. So yeah, straight from the outset, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And and more to the point, I wanted to to, to use these these illustrations as as kind of like sort of bespoke um, proprietary tarot cards that had uh, told the story of the chapter within them um, in a sort of heav heavily codified way and had vignettes with it, uh, uh, had elements with that that you could create sort of almost like archaeological vignettes um, that were used in the book to as, as illustrative guides but in the in the final section they're actually used as visualization tools as well so it was you know it was a, it was pretty clear what I wanted to do. Um, it's interesting what you were saying about like occult art in general. I mean, I, I wonder where that gothic style kind of came in. Because if you look at stuff like, you know, even Theosophy's kind of artwork and like the Golden Dawn, it's all very bright and uh, very colourful. You know, Steffi Grant stuff is often very... Exactly, exactly. Very kind of bright yeah. and colourful. So it's interesting that 
I guess maybe it's a cultural thing because the occult was kind of adopted by that kind of aesthetic a little bit. You know, it, it felt more like the occult was uh, was absorbed into that uh, that kind of like you say gothy yeah. kind of like yeah uh, yeah maybe it's like a the cult one culture influencer in another kind of maybe you know <laughs> yeah i think I, I, um yeah i'm trying to think where it went i think you know do you know that that was kind of also um, you know i was quite i used to be quite get quite disappointed but in actual fact in some of the the art in the kenneth grant books is quite sort of that sort of fancy art you get people like samuel adkins and that guy alan Hollop and things like that and it's quite this quite kind of fancy art type stuff so there was a crossover even in grant's books and i think that just sort of became quite dominant um and then obviously uh you know you'd have they just became a chic in a way you know that kind of um you know very airbrush type fancy art really isn't it i guess Mm. or or very childlike art as well there's some very i remember oh god i could I could, there's I don't want to I don't want to uh, <laughs> mention names but yeah, yeah I don't want to flame any books in particular but there's some I've got that just blow my mind how bad they are but yeah yeah I mean I mean I definitely didn't want to do it but also to a certain degree didn't want to do that kind of portentous sort of I've got a leather tone grimoire you know you know that kind of stuff as well you know that that you know that kind of sort of mock sort of like weird library that this book is really worth like about a million pound and you've and, and and the devil's written it or something like that in someone's blood you know that kind of aesthetic that you get a lot in there you know just uh, yeah it just doesn't doesn't appeal to me at all you know the, the, the much more colorful stuff as you said steffi grant stuff um really appeals to me but also kind of like uh the the, the the thoth deck as well you know that tarot deck that's just you yeah know, it's, it's very kind of um art deco isn't it almost it's kind of, yeah, yeah exactly Exactly. I yeah, noticed yeah. you 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 adopt uh, from the sun card the the sun the sun the, the how it's depicted in the actual card the the sun the sun tower. Oh yeah, yeah. In the, in the actual book itself, it's reproduced a couple of times, isn't it? Yeah. If you were going to say no, I had nothing to do with how it looks. Somebody else did that job. I was going to say, well, they did a fantastic job because they they hit the nail on the head exactly where that you know where you're coming from. With the, yeah, with the it was a very tight. I gave. Uh, I think. I think uh, Nick worked very hard for the money that he got in the end because I was very prescriptive about these chapters and uh, there was a lot of work for him, but it was like, yeah, I need that element there and this element there. But it was because it was, you know, it goes through to the final practical section that it had to be like that um, or else it would have just fallen by the wayside. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And it's a very appealing it's size. It's it's a very, it's, a, it's just the right size, not too big, not too small, but big enough so you can, like you can say, you can be seduced by the imagery. It's like we're on QV- yeah, QVC it, it, or something at the moment, isn't it? Huh? It's like we're on QVC. It's like, look. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, that's my, that's my honest appraisal. That is my honest appraisal. I mean, that's, I'm being, I'm not, I'm not just saying it. <laughs> It's funny you should say that I was very prescriptive about the size of the book as well we because are. it had to be square. Because if you if you you know a coffee table book, you sort of sit you on your and I always find them a bit too floppy, you know. And, and that actually that strange sort of like dimensions takes away um, the reading. So I actually I did actually say I, I want it sort of square for this particular reason. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I mean, good point. You know, I did, yeah. The, Things like that were, 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 yes, my, uh, my uh, demands. <laughs> it's not a spinal tap, don't I? If I, you know, I want my voice, my right. <laughs> only in the best possible sense. <laughs> <laughs>
and, and like you say, it, it, I mean, it makes you want to go. I mean, I've visited some of them myself. Some I've, some of I, I've wanted to go, need, need to go, want to go, never been to, and some I, I were completely new to me. So you know, and oh, if good. it gets yeah. people, yeah, if it gets people getting out their front doors into the real world, that's 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 quite something. And you share something of your experiences there, um, yeah, which again give, brings it to life, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, yeah, a, a touch of experience, but not like a, it's not like a, mm. you know, kind of. It, yeah, that was a part of the conversation. I think if I'd had my way, it would be more of a travel, you know, a travel bit of travel writing, you know. And actually, the first sort of sample copy, I, I think, was more was more like um, travel writing, and and they said, no, we need to split it up into itineraries, and then you and then you can go deep. Then I. You know, then have this supplementary essay in each chapter that went deeper into the subject matter. So yeah, there was a bit of compromise there, really. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot in it, and it, it what size it would have have to be if you managed to do that. But I did come away wanting more of that actual the lived reality, the lived experience of various places. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. I mean, what That's was good. the most striking? What was the most lingering? Or the most striking thing, or you know, what stayed with you the most, or the the biggest surprise, or the um, that's a good question. Um, uh, the biggest, actually, the biggest surprise for me was actually the uh, tunnel complex at Bay, because I'd seen photos of gra- uh, grass of it, and I was actually quite underwhelmed by photographs of it. But when you actually go this down this tunnel entrance to the to the cave of the Sybil. It is actually quite trippy in a in a small way, and you get the whole the whole kind of notion of the tra- uh, trapezoid sort of tunnel structure, and exactly why it would have been quite uh, quite something for the for the visitor there, you know, because these these half along this tunnel you would have these little plays of light coming in, and and you know and and, and having false you know supposedly having false tunnels where people were like rattling chains and, and doing this sort of performative magic was actually quite, it suddenly um, came, you know, the photographs and what you see and even the description to a certain degree um, don't prepare you for the reality of it. So in that in that way, I was quite surprised. Not It was not necessarily the most outlandish place I've been to. Obviously, like, uh, you know, the gardens in Sintra are pretty outlandish and the... Um, Basilica of the Holy Blood in Bruges and places like that are pretty amazing, you know. But in actual fact, that was quite informative in a kind of um, uh, of of how those places could induce or were designed to induce altered states of consciousness, and that was very interesting. What was the most atmospheric place? You do mention actually something about going down that tunnel. Just that 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 stuck with me actually. So it's interesting yeah, you yeah. Say that. Um, but what was the most atmospheric place? Um, well, I mean, the most uncanny experience I definitely had, and the, mo- the strangest experience was when I went to um, Namur in um, Belgium. So I went down there to look at the uh, to visit uh, Felicia and Rops's museum. And as I went there, and as I went towards the museum, I went past this uh, really pretty ornate church. And I felt like I need to visit that after visiting the museum. Um, there was some pool there. So I went to visit the museum and 
And there was a lot about his relation, uh, uh, relation with relationship with um, Baudelaire that I wasn't realised how close they were in terms of their kind of obsessions. And, and they had a lot of like the engravings for um, Baudelaire's poetry and stuff like that. So I came away and then I just thought, right, before I go home, I'm going to go and look in this church. And it was, you know, it was had this kind of, um, you know, it's kind of almost quasi-Masonic sort of black and tough, you know, cream sort of ornate um, architecture. And, uh, and it's really quite uh, amazing sort of um, uh, altars and things like that with these, uh, um, that was actually, you know, you know, I felt, you know that 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 was a strange atmosphere because I thought this is a kind of satanic Catholicism here, and and I thought it feels like the kind of filigrees of a of a of a, a Rops painting, and and they had this bizarre sort of really kind of quite pagan looking confessional, and uh, you know, and I thought that's really interesting. I'll write that and make sure that I put something in there. And then anyway, I got home and um, just was researching it. Um, and found out that Baudelaire had visited um, that church um, while he was visiting um, Frisian Rops, and he had, he had been marvelling at this kind of like it's it's kind of um, I can't remember what he called it threatening uh, threatening atmosphere, and had a seizure, and uh, that led to his death. And I think that was that was the most uncanny weird atmosphere that I had of a place that was, that was actually borne out by what I found out later. So there was nothing preconceived in why I went there. And I always think that's, that's where the real, the real kind of, you know, the rapport exists. And English heritage was always about the rapport. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a stage sort of um, um, investigation of various occult, figures it was a it was a you know kind of obsessional thing where the, these characters would draw you in and and that was a classic case and it was down to the atmosphere and it was down to kind of some sort of pull you know i could have easily just you know ignored it but and i always think that's 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 the truth of any kind of investigation it led down an unexpected alley Probably literally. <laughs> <laughs> literally literally yeah an uncanny alley and you know in a sense that um uh you know uh you know a uh, 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 you know genuinely supernatural experience if you like you know um you're not going to get that all the time everywhere you go you know even you know if you you know and i'm, I'm you know i kind of try and be quite um you know uh not not um skeptical by trying to you know make sure i'm not like just looking for occult, you know, coincidence and things like that. So I think that, that's where, you know, that's where, that's that's quite a powerful experience, you know. Yeah, I, I strive to be an open-minded skeptic. And that, so it's like a balancing act. And I don't always get it right with, by any means. But, yeah, it's interesting how that led to, you know, an experience in it. It's a, a synchronicity that couldn't be ignored, actually, or shook off, it sounds like. Yeah, and also, you know, a big part of the chapter. So it became you know, a huge part of the narrative, really, you know, um, uh, an important part, you know. I think, you know, you can, it's, it's important to include those as long as, you know, you're not overly, you know, to a certain degree I wasn't, you know, you know, 
looking for looking for connections a lot in English heritage. You know, it was a, it was a kind of exercise in hyperconnectivity, whereas this wasn't so much an exercise in hy- hyperconnectivity. And therefore, the things that made connections are a little bit more a little bit more subtle and uh, um, a little bit more measured, really, than the sort of anarchic sort of um, apophenia in English heretic, really. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, oh, hang on. Helps if I turn my microphone back on, doesn't it? <laughs> not, not necessarily. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were enjoying ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what is your actual take on occultism and like high strangeness and stuff? Where, where, where are you coming from in terms of belief and? Uh... Um. Well. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, um, I believe in kind of like essentially, you know, the supernatural powers of the imagination, you know, and, um, you know, uh, and the kind of kind of ontological paranoia that you get in people like with people like Philip K. Dick and Robert Anton Wilson, you know, I think that's, you know, I think that's the way I see it really as, as, as something to be, um, something to be enjoyed and something to be to to take your own mind in a particular kind of psychedelic direction really um um so yeah one of the one of the things yeah exactly i started thinking about when when i was trying to when i was writing about writing the book and about my belief system is um um because obviously i've got a i've got a medical background so um i study neuroscience and things like that so um, I've got a, um, you know, I've got a, a, a training in, in kind of reductive thinking and things like that. But obviously, I'm interested in, in occultism, and I think, I think, I think, in the truth of that is, you know, it's it's I, I you know, I enjoy that kind of delirious other reality, really, and I've always wanted needed that, really. Um, partly, you know, because conventional reality is quite boring, to be honest. Um, and I think I think that's always tapped into that. Um, and one of the things uh, I sort of explored in the kind of theoretical section was this idea of of magical consciousness, really, and, and magical thinking as, as being a different mode of thinking, you know, a mode based on association rather than kind of logic and reduction. Um, and that you know, I, I, I quote um, Susan Greenwood's book on magical consciousness, and, and the work of like Patrick McNamara, who who actually wrote a really good book on neuroscience of nightmares. Um, but he he talks about a process of decentering, um, which is a kind of um, a conscious uh, uh, overriding of of what he calls the, like the process of the ego. So he sees the ego as a, as a process rather than. Um, rather than the thing and and this process is a kind of tight feedback mechanism in the in the sort of uh uh frontal cortex that 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 maintains this kind of um logical center and that you can actually choose to through either psychedelics or magical practice or ecstatic um ritual and things like that to move away to decenter from this and uh the argument is that the sort of this sort of like conscious decentering that's 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 obviously 
facilitated by guides and, and people who are going to keep you in, you know, from, from completely going off the rails is actually, you know, quite a healthy process for reintegrating the ego in a, in a, in a, with, with the, the knowledge of, of this other way of thinking. And, and there's a good argument in that I read that saying, you know, kind of this kind of, kind of patronizing way that people perceive primitive tribal, um, uh, thought processes magical and the idea and 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 uh, I can't remember which book I think it was in the season room where someone said well yeah they know exactly how you know the so-called primitive people know exactly how to think reductively it's just they don't choose to you know so so that that's that's really my perception of you know my whole interest in magic and occultism is that it's a conscious decision to think of uh, 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 to experience life in a different way you know, um, but but you know, there's, there's you know, you can live life logically, but you can also choose to have have a, a part of your life that lives life associatively. You know, in a, in a kind of dream state and things like that. Yeah, and sometimes logic only allows us to be uh, wrong with authority. I mean, it's interesting with the. I mean, there's a classic balance there between you know, in the Western esoteric tradition of the sort of dark pillar and the white pillar and the different parts of. Uh, left and right brain and so on i mean yeah i i, I relate to that i mean uh, for going from my own experiences yeah ultimately you know it sort of it has changed me and um I, I, there's certain experiences which i don't go into where, which i can't i i i can't by any in all conscience dismiss or explain away in a conventional way and uh, but then then what space does that occupy and for want of a better word it's a very clunk, clumsy, clunky word, and you know they are supernatural in that sense. That I can't, I can't account for them. Yeah, and I, but yeah, as I said, you know, my, you know, I, I think one of the interests I had in that kind of, especially the work of Joris Carl Huesman is 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 this kind of supernatural realism that he had in his work, and I think that's what makes his stuff so powerful. And um, you know, I, I for a while I've been thinking about this idea of of. of if you look at nature close enough, it becomes supernature. You know that, that that things become that. You know the closer you look at something, the the, the 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 stranger it is. You know, and you certainly get that in kind of you know things like physics. You know, and and molecular biology. You know, in terms of how memory works, it becomes really, really, really strange. The whole process of how how we remember and things like that, and the whole kind of system of like, you know, this whole idea of you know how memories are created and, uh, and and the neuroplasticity is almost like in itself it becomes when you start looking at biology in that way it becomes this kind of quite miraculous thing in a weird way yeah supernature supernaturalism tomato tomato but these these words are like you know they're incomplete all these models are incomplete and temporary because yeah, we are exactly. because we are yeah. and that's yeah. uh, and the 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 mystery is is the lived reality so yeah absolutely yeah yeah and also you know um, making a choice to live magically yeah, yeah. You know, under will you know, things becomes more magical the more you you know engage with it you know the whole kind of principle of alchemy is all about that you know is that you don't suddenly step out and you know, analyze it to uh to to the sense that the magic is taken away you live in this kind of uh, hermetic reality yeah um so in the book you you break down the sort of sections into roots different journeys you can go on um yeah. and you start off with uh satan and his his uh his places 
Um, and the one that I found quite interesting, I was wondering, have you been to Dejet in, in um, it's actually Jeddet, isn't it, in, in Egypt? No, I haven't. No, that was one of the places I haven't been, no. But I mean, it is accessible, yeah, yeah. Um, and it does look absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there seems to be a lot of kind of um, Satan crossover in Egypt, in ancient Egypt. especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, there's a very good book called City of the Ram God, I think, Um it's an archaeological study. Um, but what kind of amazed me was the, the size of these kind of <clears throat> statues that they'd have um, uh, and just the you know, sheer scale of the kind of worship there, really. Um, but obviously there's kind of all this kind of, um, you know, idea that there was this kind of like cult that was mating with, um, you know, rams and things like that. And whether, again... And a lot of these, certainly in the Satanism chapter, what I found is, you know, is the kind of the, the dance between the real kind of sense of some sort of satanic practice and the propaganda, you know. So, you know, that that it seems to be a constant throughout the, the journey, in a sense, you know. And I thought that was a really interesting part that you could trace, as much as you could trace this, the kind of sacrificial practice, you could also trace the propaganda that, that generated that. And I think that's a really interesting sort of, subtext in that chapter so you had like you know the idea that herodotus went to 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 uh uh mendes and said oh yeah they're all practicing bestiality there and you know that's propaganda you know greek propaganda then you had the same thing in carthage you had the same thing with the irish hellfire clubs and the rise of like unions and things like that and you suddenly see that wow this and then also in um you know in um in uh in in houston's times as well you know there was this kind of parallel parallel sort of political element to kind of um exposing satanism as well yeah i mean it's i I mean what his particular view take on the i mean it led to that that's where the phrase the goat of menders comes from (laughs) but uh but the yeah, as you say, it's it's a ram, ram a black ram specifically. The, I mean, black yeah, is the yeah. color of of good in the Egyptian worldview, and red is evil. If you go to Egypt, the the desert, the desolate desert, is like a reddish sort of color, and and the okay, yeah, and the yeah, loam next to the Nile is is you know the black's fertile, so it's it's fertile, so it's connected with ideas of fertility. How what he if he was just amazed by like you know it, <laughs> it was just like this extraordinary custom it, it's not clear to me but yeah but uh yeah and 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 there's something lost in translation with the ram that crosses over into the goat but then you got um azizel the scapegoat in the the hebrew testament uh, scripture okay, yeah, and, then, yeah. and that sort of all sort of segues in so it all sort of you know there's a there's a narrative there as well you can sort of see the 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 sort of magical dna in in baphomet's uh, you know the the yeah the, absolutely uh, absolutely and as you know, Levi sort of like kind of description it as as this sort of uh, <clears throat> sort of kind of monstrous complex that's you know visible through different through different ages. I think it's really interesting. You yeah. know, which he identifies as the scarecrow to the profane. It's not it's not the it's not the simple personification of evil that it appears to be. It's far more you know a transgressive figure totally. When you think of a vi- in that Victorian image, you've got ma- clearly male and female symbols put together. That would be that would be you know that the, the potency of that is I think still with us you know because it's, yeah yeah you know that caduceus I mean, between its legs are, is clearly a phallus 
and there's and it, oh, it's a it's a polite version of the phallus maybe, but it's still that must have been a, a you know that image is had, would have a shocking effect, and it's still it's still a startling image, isn't it? Which is part of its potency. I think that's why its magic is still with us. Yeah, yeah, and and the other thing about you know Levo, he was again like there was this political element to his magic as well because he, I mean, he was a he was a socialist, wasn't he? And uh, um, I can't remember the June uprising. He had to kind of he had to sort of denounce his socialism, and, and the the occultism actually was a mask for their kind of social social socialist utopia, really, and sort of involving elements of feminism and stuff like that. There's a guy called Julian Julian Straub, is it? Who's written quite a lot about um, Levy and the kind of um, um, all the, the the socialist strand to his occultism and things like that. So and the Catholic it brings us back to the Catholic, the French Victorian Catholic, you know, um, atmosphere again because he trained for the priesthood and then had a yeah, crisis yeah. of conscience. So that's yeah, it's all in there. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's a very, very complex figure. I mean, I don't think I had time to do it justice. So in that chapter, I had to kind of gloss over the, the, the stuff that I would have ordinarily really liked to dig into um, in terms of the complexity and the moral complexity of it. Yeah, well, one location in the first route as well is one that's near and dear to Mark and I is the Hellfire Club locations. And um, we've many a, many a time visited... Um, the uh, Dashwood Estate. We've been. To, we went to the estate recently. We went to uh, the Hellfire Caves, the mausoleum, which is based on the uh, oh, yeah, Abbey yeah, of Thelema, yeah. and yeah. yeah. So, um, what drew you to include the Hellfire Club into, into this? Um, well, it's because it's because it's. Uh, uh, I, I think I, I think the, the chapter would have been. Um, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been. Uh, it would have been a big miss if I hadn't put the Hellfire Club in, but um, I'd, I'd seen quite a few guides that obviously used um, uh, West Wickham and things like that and the Hellfire Caves, and I wanted to do a slightly different angle. I had a friend over in Dublin who um, who sent me a book on the Irish Hellfire Clubs, and it was fascinating. Um, you know, they were you know, uh, and also the kind of mythic drift from the, the kind of um, the London Hellfire Clubs, the Irish Hellfire Clubs is quite interesting. You know, it's kind of this idea that you burn alive a servant, um, um, which is quite common uh, it, to the kind of the, the London Hellfire Clubs that actually happened in reality in um, in Ireland. Uh, so I was actually, so again, it was a slightly, I, I felt I needed to put something in about the Hellfire Clubs because it's a kind of, you know, is you know, I wanted to put in not just the kind of the, the historical sort of elements of Satanism, but also the kind of almost the uh, the kind of vaudeville elements of, or the, the gentleman's club and the kind of whole pretense of Satanism. I think this is quite an important thing to actually include it in there as well, um, because it is kind of confused, really. Um, and you still see that in the Bay and people like that, you know. It's, this pretense of evil and um, charade and gate and things like that. So, um, but yeah, the Irish health cause are very interesting. The books on it are good. And uh, um, uh, we went up to the uh, Montpellier Hill, had a long climb up there to the, to the hunting lodge that was supposedly the centre of the Irish health clubs. 
Uh, yeah, there's some there's some uh, contention to whether that actually was their location, isn't there? But um... yeah, yeah. Again, like it's again, it's it's an interesting. So they they started off in uh, in Dublin, uh, um, in this place that's now kind of uh, Quakers meeting centre. Um, but again, it was the same place that was used by like kind of the uh, um, the burgeoning sort of unionist movement. So you know. Um, the, the 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 Hellfire Club on Montpellier Hill, yeah, again, was you know, it's kind of it's just legend really that suggests that there was a meeting place. For, There's a great uh, story related to that, isn't there? With the, uh, the, the are they playing poker or something? And uh, oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and the gentleman turns up, and yeah, uh, uh, do you know this story? The uh, well, he turns out to be the devil or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, they um, yeah, yeah, they're all drinking, and someone drops a something on the ground and looks down and sees that the, the uh who footed one he, see, he sees the uh the cloven hooves whatever <laughs> yeah. uh, instead of feet and uh yeah and then yeah, it yeah. All burns down and that's why it burnt down that's the uh that's the kind of infamous myth yeah i mean I, the thing is the th- and then the also the other story that was about uh supposedly built on these kind of uh from the stones from this old kind of uh burial ground yeah yeah any truth in that it had to be a big burial mound, you know. So whether they used like a foundation stone or something like that. But again, you know, the the the, the backstory on that it, it, it was probably used as a hideout for units on the run. So you can imagine, you know, kind of right. Don't go up there because you know there's Satanists up there, you know, and there's there's bad goings on. Whereas in actual fact, it's a hideout, really. You know, so it's a great way of kind of um, you know keeping people off the trail of your, of, of, of your sort of political practices and, and that, whatever. That, that fable of the playing cards with the devil and he's like, a, you know, you, the realisation that's who it is, that there's another location on Ireland, in the same in Ireland as well, where it's associated with another building. So it's obviously doing the rounds in that part of the world. It might not be inconceivable that some of the building was rebuilt from older material. I mean, if you take, um, I mean, you mentioned it as well, Avebury, many of the houses there were, were actually uh, constructed uh, from broken stones from the stones in the circle so yeah, I think, were, yeah so that's not inconceivable yeah i mean that's a good point actually yeah yeah i mean it could be yeah yeah um because you, you would have thought it had to be local stone because it's it's like you know where would you quarry it from um because it's you know it's miles away up on a hill you know so yeah it's a good point yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean with avery at one point they were more reverent towards the stones the church as you must know well you do know is it's built outside the circle it's almost like it hasn't got the com- christianity at that point hasn't got the confidence to be right slap bang and things usually churches get built right on top of stuff don't they mm, and yeah, um, yeah. and then at, at the in the earlier period they buried the stones they didn't destroy them so they dug pits and buried the stones and they and even within relative recent time they've discovered hidden stones you know but then later they were far more um stringent and built pits underneath the stones you know f- lay them across and built fires and then poured water on them to shatter them and those shattered fragments became houses so there's like a pub just outside uh, West Kennet Long Barrow, that's where it is. I can't remember the name of it, but that that whole pub is built from the shattered remains. Right, of a, that's interesting, isn't yeah. it? Because there's, there's all that information that's come out recently. That guy, one, I think, a kind of guy who sat marmalade marmalade factory. He was a guy who who kind of rebuilt 
Avery, wasn't he? And dug them all up in the thirties and things like that. And I was, you know, I was again, I was, yeah, as you say, I was quite, I was quite shocked that that what we what we see today wasn't what we saw in like kind of nineteen twenties. It was, as you say, it was it all being polarised. Yeah, I'd heard this recently. I don't. Even, Have you been to uh, West Wickham to the? Um... Yeah, there. yeah, good few times. Yeah, yeah. And the, estate, um, the estate's fantastic, isn't it? Have you been on the actual Dashwood estate? Opposite, yeah, yeah. On the, on the road opposite yeah. the Hellfire Caves with their Volvic kind of. Um, oh yeah, the Temple of Venus. Yeah, yeah. which is a very, <laughs> from an anatomical point of view, as a very interesting um, front entrance. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really like. I, I kind of prefer the the estate with the, the mausoleum and um, um, and the church as well. You know, kind mm. of. Um, yeah. Secret um, passage apparently the, between the yeah, caves and the yeah. church, isn't there? Is this yeah. the Temple of Venus? Well, is this the yeah. Temple of Venus we're talking about? No, 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 the caves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a different sort of secret passage. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's not that secret because no, it's pretty yeah. obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. pretty obvious. <laughs> it's always quite funny when you know the story of why it's shaped in a vaginal way. Um, <laughs> And you see, like families posing next to it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you're just like, oh god! <laughs> if only yeah. they knew. Yeah. <laughs> it's a. Yeah. Remember we were there. I remember it's a bit of a side note, but we were there, and this this um this troop of old people turned up, and there was you know like obviously on a day trip, and there was like fifteen of them, and I remember I think you'd wandered off somewhere, but I've got a photograph of all these like old people stood around this kind of uh <laughs> it's it, i've got it's one of my favorite photographs i think gate, i've ever the taken of they're, they're aging yeah. satanists from yeah Mozart exactly yeah Baby, aren't they really yeah there's a frozen baby here <laughs> they're, they're, yeah and, you, and you've you've actually been to the georgian vulture Yes, the the chop. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it worth? Yeah. Well, I want to go there, so it's, uh, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, it's good. It's quite expensive. So it's quite yeah. expensive. Is it a chop house? Yeah. Is it a chop house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's, okay, it's good, and it's yeah. and it's yeah. open at very funny times, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's not open. It's only open city hours, isn't it? Really? Yeah. It's right yeah. in the, because it's right. It's yeah. near Liverpool Street Station, and that's, that's right, yeah, sort yeah. of kind of area. Yeah. That's on my list. Because oh, I, was, I, I got a bit excited yeah. when I was reading about it because I want to go to see that. And it was in the George, in the basement of Georgian Vulture that the the Hellfire Club, of all Hellfire Club, you know, the proto-Hellfire Club, uh, they met there. That's right, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah, yeah. And they had yeah. the um, the lamp, the Rose, what is called the Rosicrucian lamp, for whatever, rightly or wrong, whatever. This esoteric lamp, certainly, Masonic lamp, esoteric lamp. That was that was hung in the in the basement, which is probably the kitchen now or something like that. Now, mm. I don't yeah, know. I, but that's also West Wickham, isn't it? As well, there's a Rosa, the mention of Rosa Crucian yeah, land. Yeah, well. yeah. In the yeah. yeah, right at the end of the caves in the Holy of Holies or Unholies, as it may be, right underneath the church where they've got the the, the yeah, delightfully kitsch. Um, uh, waxworks. waxworks, yeah. <laughs> There's like a reproduction of it. it. Doesn't do it justice, but it's a reproduction of it. There, I remember thinking, "Oh, that's that's interesting." That, I, th yeah. I think it'd be quite ineffable. I think it's quite ineffable. This Rosicrucian lamp, isn't it? Mm. You know. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's an object. I, I mean, it's obviously it might turn up on you know bargain hunt or something. But uh, <laughs> if, if <laughs> that's an object that you know, that's like a that's like a kind of holy grail type of you know a holy unknown an unholy relic of. A relic, I think, anyway. yeah. I mean, again, I could have really. There's a whole kind of, uh, kind of links. The Rosicrucian links in a lot of a lot of 
a lot of the chapters really I could have gone down whole yeah. you know it could have been a lot bigger and, and certainly I did did start writing about the kind of the symbolism of the Rosicrucian lamp but again it was you know I can't remember it's, it, I was tied to sort of 6,000 words per chapter and things like that and you just um, there's, there's some there's definitely stuff you know that, that, that um, you know that I would have liked to explore in more detail. And, you, and you know, in the fact, you know, that that's life, isn't it? You go on and, and discover more and more, you know, um, someone like, um, you know, the interesting characters and, uh, uh, and, and leads and things like that. So, um, Perhaps you could, yeah, you could do a supplementary fanzine or something. That would be, well, it's funny you should say that. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of, um, suggested, um, cause they're looking for ways to further promote the book. And I suggested that actually I could switch it, you know, like, um, switch it around from English heretic to a certain degree. And also people like weird walk and do it the other way around. And mm. actually I think it will work really well because I could, um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have the editorial kind of, um, uh, sort of, uh, restrictions on it so i would just take the name and, and something want to so it'd get a lot more grantian to be honest and it'd be cool i kind of think it'd be on the astral geographic and it would just <laughs> every but basically every issue would be just about getting this grant weird stuff you know if i didn't home it in but there was a lot you know there was a there was a whole section on um uh in the in the necromancy chapter i got interested in kind of sh um the necromancy involved with like ship burials in in norway and things like that that was actually really fascinating and um i had to chop out you know maybe a thousand words on that um but i'm hoping to head to um denmark and and explore that a bit more in in may you know and uh, um i don't really read that book by uh, the, the, the series of books by shana oates about odin oh i've got one of them i haven't finished reading it yet but i've got the first uh, one yeah yeah i've just finished reading that and so i'm going to go over to ordens and visit some of the locations for these hanging cults so obviously kind of there's this whole kind of stuff that's come out of that really you know and then and links between sort of um you know burrows hanging cults and norse hanging cults so you just you know your life just progresses into mm. into the weird you know, yeah. so. <laughs> um, i was interested that you brought up the william westerfield house in this as well that's a uh, yeah yeah that's yeah that's like a uh, that's somewhere i want to visit personally as well because of the the mad amount of stuff that's happened there it's a uh, Especially yeah, kind of I mean, anger stuff. Uh, yeah. It's almost like a, a sort of countercultural, sort of interdimensional kind of countercultural place that's, you know, it's, a, it's like a metafiction in itself, isn't it? You know, and all these kind of, you know, uh, you know, you could you could easily imagine like kind of sort of an Alan Moore type thing just existing in his house. And, and that's why I wanted that illustration to very much point out the kind of the, the William Westerfield house in the, in, in the chapter because I felt it was this kind of like, you know, uh, sort of metafictional paradise, really, or, or it, it, you know, hell, infernal paradise, or whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously, the, uh, the thing that really interested me in that was was the uh, the juxtaposition between the locations that we used in um, uh, Invocation, My Demon Brother. Was it? Yeah, Invocation, My Demon Brother, where the you know the two most pointed collage sequences in that cut from um levey doing this kind of pseudo voodooistic ritual with a skull then it cuts to the stones playing and then later they're doing the ceremony going down the stairs and bobby beausoleil's at the end of it and they cut to the stones again i just thought that's definitely kind of cut up magic going on there you know between the house and 
an ultimate and stuff like that. And that was, you know, that was, yeah, that was, again, I could have, could have con- done a lot more on the kind of Kenneth Angers sort of magic, really, you know, it, you know, again, I had to touch on it, but yeah, I, th- I think there's something very potent about, about Angers use of that place in the film as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, since yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, since we, yeah, yeah, definitely since we last spoke, he, he's he sort of passed away. Yeah. 95, 90, something like that, wasn't it? And, yeah, um, yeah. I've, I've not been able to find anything. I've asked everybody you should know, and I've persistently asked them, um, uh, and I've found nothing about his funeral. Absolutely nothing. Oh, right. it's, it's, no. it's conspicuous by its absence, the coin phrase. Right. But what's also conspicuous by its absence is that there is a like story circulate. You know, where there is no, <laughs> where there is no story, people will make stuff up. But I haven't heard stuff made up either. So it's so if anybody out there knows <laughs> anything about it, probably I'm asking for. Yeah, I don't yeah. want a fable. I want, to, <laughs> I want to because I've asked everybody who should know, and nobody who should know or heard something has been able to tell me a we should ask brian butler really i mean i speak to him quite mm. regularly so yeah yeah now brian butler was his kind of yeah his well, kind of well, assistant yes. towards the end i think producer yeah, exactly. assistant yeah carer carer yeah it seems like yeah at some point <clears throat> yeah so the other um house from that chapter you know not to linger too much on one chapter it's just my you know it's my thing i suppose um, <clears throat> it's the process church house um oh yeah 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 it's a fascinating kind of structure in itself a hierarchical structure yeah yeah, yeah. i mean I actually um, interviewed timothy wiley on this show before he died oh, did you? yeah yeah quite a few years ago die? he was more in he was more interested in talking about um dolphins and ketamine than he was uh, <laughs> about the process <laughs> church which is interesting but yeah no it's kind of uh, but yeah did you uh, visit the exterior at least of the yeah uh, yeah it was quite funny because i went there and uh um there was this kind of instagram couple like influencers there having their photograph taken at number four mm. and i was and they were like uh like i said you want to go outside number two that's where the really cool stuff is at. <laughs> so it was quite funny seeing this kind of a whole area being the sort of you know because it's very high end isn't it, mm. and it and in a sense that's kind of that was what it was you know that that's very much part of the the kind of cultic sort of hierarchy there, wasn't it? You know, in terms of you know the the way that you know um, you know the, the majority of the the the, the um, group lived in sort of like kind of like dormitories, and then you know you had the, the you know the, the hierarchy, you know, in a sort of secluded space. Um, but yeah, I mean that was more. I mean, I'm fascinated by the kind of um, you know the imagery of that that building was used a lot in their in their zines, wasn't it? You know there was a process house, and uh, you know they would have it. You know this sort of sinister angle, wouldn't it? That it would it would be taken at, and uh, you know the whole idea of this kind of Satan's cabin, where you know uh, Brian Epstein off his face on Valium would be sort of hanging around with a uh, and Rinpoche and things like that. It sounded amazing, you know, just like the whole kind of. You know, again, very Grantian. You know, that sort of mix of kind of psychedelia and uh, and, and Satanism, where you sort of s- psychedelic Satanism, if you like. Satan's yeah. coffee shop as well. I, I, yeah, I yeah. William Burroughs and uh, 
you know the uh, the chap who did the pink flamingos they all they they all they all foregathered there as well so and did even, they what john walters and john walters yeah yeah that seems that's the most unlikely combination of oh things. yeah okay well yeah he gives yeah. His, uh, he talks about his own account of being there and and talking to the people and saying well you know they're they're quite welcoming him and and you know people who were marginalized didn't fit into the mainstream they were you know that was a good place to go because they were okay about that they were fine so, yeah yeah uh, i mean and also i think it just you know it was a very striking i, I mean just you know I, I read quite a bit for the book and uh i bought you know, the, the, the reissues of the magazines, and I, really, I, I hadn't quite tweaked how much of an influence they were on uh, Templar Psychic Youth, how much wholesale they kind of borrowed their kind of aesthetic, you know, the Alsatians and stuff like that, and, you know, the, 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 the kind of very striking sort of collage, you know, imagery, walls, things like that, you know, and this whole kind of, um, you know, um, yeah, quite formidable form of of kind of, you know, occultism that isn't, you know, again, we're going to say, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I particularly liked early kind of temple of psychic use aesthetic. I thought it was amazing, the collages and things like that. And the whole kind of uh, a branding in a way was very potent, really. And I guess that was, you know, to be honest, as you know, you can see Peter Christopherson in there, you know, that that kind of very shrewd eye for, for, for something very subversive. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, so moving into the necromancy section, the one that struck us was the St. Leonard's Church. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And Mark, yeah. Mark has a... Is, where, is that Walter de la Mer? Is that right? Where is it? Walter de Dale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yes, yeah, yeah. Did you actually visit that? What was, what was the actual... I did, yeah, and I had a quite strange experience there. Oh, oh good. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean... What's quite interesting about that place is that most of the graveyards, are, the gravestones are from the 18th, 17th century. So, so it's been knocked down and rebuilt a few times. So, um, you know, the, the actual church topography, the, 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 the church uh, architecture is exactly as you see in those kind of mezzotints or whatever. Yeah, that you know, famous etching. Although it's block. more sloping, the, the, the kind of um, the graveyard slopes down, it's not flat. Um, but when I was there, I was like, my... my um, I was actually up uh, coming back from holiday in Cumbria. My um, my family are, are from Cumbria, so they're sharps. And uh, and I was in the graveyard, and I was sort of taking some photographs, and I found myself standing on this uh, this tombstone that was a sharp tombstone. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I, walked, I walked. I was walking around. It started raining, and this this old guy who looked very much like my granddad type, you know. My granddad worked in steelworks, and he's kind of this strong, stoical type figure. And he he started walking past me, and he had this big black dog that he was walking, and I was kind of high, and uh, yeah, and he oh, there's going to be rain in the clouds and that sort of stuff. And it felt quite quite a strange sort of meeting, anyway. So I went to the car, and and then he just sort of came straight back, as if he had just sort of come to meet me and then just gone straight back rather than going on his walk so it's quite an odd sort of again it's one of those sort of things possibly not you know again not worth putting in the book because it was a, a quite personal sort of anecdote but there was a strong sense of yeah kind of that sort of psychopopic sort of goings on that you occasionally get um uh yeah so that was quite a strange experience that i wasn't expecting there really 
yeah it's, but, one, of, it's one of the locations i've yet to visit again it it, it my ear my sort of astral ears pricked up uh, when it was in there there's also there's also a a, a a, a suggestion a tradition that part of the reason kelly was there was uh, on a treasure hunt there was a treasure hunt element to it and was there i didn't realize that you know i i i, I mean the, the stuff i read was that um he was you know he was uh he was sort of invited by uh, uh a sort of middleman of a kind of lord that wanted to know about his death or was worried about his death or worried that people were after him. But I didn't know about the treasure hunting aspect. There could, have been, there could have been a more than one occasion. And funny enough, yeah. there, was, there is a there was there was a tradition that if you stood in the graveyard, you would be in sight of buried treasure. So it would be in sight. You obviously it's buried, so you can't see it. But you know what I mean. Yeah. It would be in your you know it would be uh, it's not visible. Yeah, be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would be within sort of reach, so to speak. Um, oh, okay. but, yeah. and, and curiously, in the, I think it's 1950s, there was an archaeological dig on the r river nearby, or bank nearby, and they found a Saxon hoard in there in about 1950s. So that might be in a folk memory as well. Right. It's, it's right. possible, actually. They did. It, 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 there's another possibility is that they didn't go there for that reason. But that's sort of become incorporated. You know, the the folklore uh, is like a folk memory of, uh, the, you know, there is a hoard there and it was discovered in the 50s. So, But if you did stand in the church, you would be, you know, it would be in sight, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Uh, the other interesting aspect there is that you know, John Dee was was given permission to dig for treasure at Sutton Hoo, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. In so, Glastonbury, you know, in Glastonbury, he, he also dug about for stuff. Did he as well? Yeah. yeah so yeah. there's this tradition of, of, of kind of yeah, the, the old kind of digging for Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about because um, I'm kind of interested in this as well, which is the Falcinelli um, Langua Verde. Um, could you t tell us what that is? Because uh, it's like yeah, a strange I mean, form of alchemy or something, isn't it? It's a... yeah. I mean, Langua Verde means green language, but uh, essentially, what it is is uh, a sort of magical language based on punning um, and double entendre and things like that. So, whereas you've got Kabbalism. Hebrew Kabbalah, which is a sort of numerical equivalent, um, in in Fulcanelli's Kabbalah, it's 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 essentially like wordplay. Um, but what I, um, what I got really interested in was, you know, I'm interested in the whole um, concept of like magical wordplay and 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 double meaning, and and also you know the way that you can, you know, you can look at <clears throat> sort of Christian texts and, and read a double meaning by wordplay. That's very much in Fulcanelli's sort of canon. Um, but also, I was interested in why he why he was kind of obsessed with this kind of pathological, well, not pathological as in disease, but this kind of um, compulsive kind of wordplay that his books are. Um, and the tradition with the traditional perception of uh, Fulcanelli or whoever Fulcanelli was, Jean Julien Champagne and uh, Eugene Cancillier, is that they were like they were taking absence in order to kind of hallucinate and things like that. But in actual fact, it seems that they were they were taking a, a concoction of galbanum and uh, hashish, and I think that's what gave rise to the kind of um, wordplay that's associated with kind of stoner sort of uh 
uh, language and things like that. And then the green language starts to make sense in terms of cannabis and, uh, and also how um, Fulcanelli sees Rabelais' uh, work as a massive sort of alchemical sort of play that's based on hashish and things like that. So I think the Langa Verde is a kind of stoner language, literally, you know, stoner, double, you know, whatever, philosophical, philosophical stoners. And I, I think that's where, um, where, where it's really interesting because I think, um, I, I think what's happening with Fulcanelli that he's he's kind of accessing this this kind of waking dream state that's kind of similar to uh, what you see in um, uh, James Joyce's Finnegan Wake, Finnegan's Wake, and also you know the kind of thing that Robert Anton Wilson was looking at. You know, it's kind of like you know um, you know kind of linguistic synchronicities and things like that, and obviously you know. And Robin Anton Wilson was a massive fan of um, uh, James Joyce, Finnegan's Wake. So I think you know this, this. I think what happens in the kind of dream state, and certainly hadn't done written, written fiction and written writing that actually tries to get in a waking dream state, is that you end up in this kind of area where visual puns and wordplay kind of predominate. Um, and what's interesting in in terms of. Uh, Fulcanelli's work is it kind of relates to what Freud thought uh, the the pre linguist the pre, or the pre um, not the pre linguistic but the pre uh, literate language of dreams is because if you think about it in your dreams is that you can't spell you know you're in a you're in a pre literate state but what happens is that things become phonetic so you will start to make phonetic associations in your dream as well as kind of imagistic ones. And this is very much tied in with the idea of the rebus um, that, that Freud was interested in. He, he thought that there was a, a kind of uh, a linguist, a sort of a phonetic uh, pre-literate basis for dreams that was called the rebus, which is, again, using heraldry, you know, so you'll see puns in heraldry. And, and again, Fulconelli looks at heraldry and there's a place in, in London, there's the Oriel window at St. Bart's Church that's got a bolt and a tongue. And it's and it's a kind of pun of the uh, prior who ran it called uh, a Bolton, um, and this appears in Fulconelli's um, dwellings of philosophers. And I think it's amazing that you can wander into London and see this kind of key image that's crucial to kind of understanding Fulconelli. And the iconography, uh, the visual iconography of of Notre Dame and and the whole, you know, that that's, you know, I mean that's, uh, yeah, I mean it's stoner in the in the in the in the absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah masonic yeah. sense. You see what I've done there? You see, I've done a bit. <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. I'm doing a bit of the green language myself. <laughs> He's really hey. stoned. Yeah, it's stoner. <laughs> it's stoner in the sense that you know he he's literally looking at the masonry and the 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 chiselled imagery of the. Of the yeah, yeah. His argument was that uh, I, I, I kind of think what he did was, was a kind of like, um, would be doing kind of uh, time astral time travel. I think he, he you know, they were experimenting with galvanum and and hashish, and then kind of doing kind of projections to a kind of medieval, you know, astral version of 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 the cathedral and then, you know, riffing on the things they saw and things like that. And I think this is kind of way is, 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 
that's my perception of the working mechanism. Mm. Uh, one one place that interested me was the Holyrood Palace Gardens. The uh, oh yeah, the, yeah, that kind of object that's there. The uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Like kind of yeah, yeah. again, it's, it, it it turns up in so Falconelli's like you know kind of most recognised book is the mystery of the cathedrals, but there's a there's another text called the Dwellings of the Philosophers, which is kind of more diffuse. Um, but what's always struck me with, it, with this is is these kind of really kind of quite obscure places where he sees like alchemical tradition, and um, um, so the Holyrood sundial is in Edinburgh in the guards of Holyrood Palace. It's actually an incredibly beautiful kind of um, um, almost like a it's almost like a crystal, um, and it has these very ornate sort of um, uh, green men type figures, suns and moons and things like that, and the thistles and things like that. And so um, Falconelli really goes to town on it and says it's actually kind of a depiction of the Emerald Tablet, um, and, it, and it divulges the whole alchemical process. Um, uh, and there's, again, he's kind of looking at, very, he, he sort of uh, decomposes it into various kind of um, uh, linguistic sort of uh, alchemical ciphers and things like that um i don't think i really had time to go into all of that but it's it, i mean i mean it's 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 pretty you know it's pretty rich in 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 the actual book itself um but he also relates it to uh um uh, a scottish alchemist um who who i th i think if you look at if you look at um the character for Connelly himself, he's like this composite of, of, of various kind of um, alchemical legends. Um, and you can certainly see him in, in Alexander Seton, his name is, I'm trying to remember his name, who was a, who was an alchemist who kind of um, um, claimed to have the secrets to um, creating the philosopher's stone and was, I think he was tortured or something like that in, 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 in Prague or something like that, and then managed to escape. Um, but again, it's got this kind of really kind of bizarre, rich life story. Um, and so the supposition is that it's somehow he's associated with this this sundial in Hollywood. And you use it, Mr. Sharp, in, on the front of one of your albums, isn't it? I did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I did an album with a, a friend of mine, Gray, um, and... Uh, um, th that was mainly based around uh, sort of Edinburgh location. So um, I was kind of writing this book at the time and sort of tied it in. So I've, I've kind of used it in two different places. Yeah. So, but I've been obsessed with it for, for, for you know, just the beauty of it, actually going up and, and just studying it and seeing, because it's all kind of covered in verdigris. And it's actually just, you know, it's, it's a pretty psychedelic sort of object in itself, you know. It looks quite unique, isn't it? I can't think of anything exactly like it. This is, this, apparently, I mean, there's a few similarish ones in in yeah, there's a there's a couple in in Scotland that 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 that, that might be by the same person, but not that many. Yeah, yeah. But this this kind of tradition of kind of um, you know these kind of quite sort of um, peculiar sundials. There's a great site that's all dedicated to sundials. That's quite interesting. Um, get One thing I spotted of perhaps a missed chance here is that the initiatory section starts on page 93 
and had you shunted the crody section to, to uh, <laughs> <laughs> you would have had a uh, yeah. <laughs> so maybe for the reprint for the, for the second edition switch the chapters around yeah and, yeah and definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah probably yeah. <laughs> i didn't notice that at all. <laughs> but um i was interested in the desert uh is it desert direct in um and george bataille in that oh section. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah could you talk a little bit to that kind of the kind of connection between the two it was um the kind of fascinating rituals that he was uh allegedly performing so that's Bataille. that's yeah, uh, yeah. uh retired society asaphile i mean i visited that 10 15 years ago a friend of mine um agnes was very interesting Bataille, and and i don't really know john cussons who wrote a book called undead uprising um who is a kind of expert on voodooism and he wrote a book on Buddhism, but he was looking at kind of the connection between these kind of like um, revolutionary sacrifice and things like that. Um, and um, yeah, so <clears throat> um, Desert Duretz is a, a folly garden um, in a forest called Marley Forest, uh, just outside Paris. Um, and it's sort of got lots of traditional sort of um, uh, follies that you would expect, like a temple of Apollo and a pyramid and, and things like that. Um, and it was, you know, supposedly uh, <clears throat> designed as a, as a sort of Masonic initiation path and things like that. And uh, got a lovely kind of tin Saracen scent, uh, tent as well that's kind of painted pink and, and blue, um, really pretty ornate. So that what fell into quite a serious disrepair and has been sort of... Um, Remanaged in the in, in the eighties, but in the so it was a meeting point for the surrealists um, uh, because of its bizarreness, really. But um, uh, Bataille's Society Asafal was dedicated to um, sort of this this concept of the headless society, and they, they were uh, interested in kind of inaugurating um, some kind of revolutionary sacrifice, um, and uh, so they 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 devise all these kind of almost like performative um, actions really. And one of them was to take place outside this tree struck by, by beneath this tree struck by lightning in the Mali forest where they would have, one of them would be sacrificed in order to basically their argument was to, to gird the rest of the, 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 the society's loins against the rise of fascism. So to protect, to in a, in a sense, Prepare them for an age of violence and an age of nihilism, things like that. Bataille um, offered himself, didn't he? Apparently, he did three times, and uh, they refused. Um, so, uh, um, but the, 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 it, within within the um, within the garden itself is this is this amazing ruined headless column, like a massive Doric column. It's a building, really, um, and it's like a broken column. Um, and when you go inside there, apparently, I mean, in, it, in its original form, it had mirrors all on the inside to reflect the vegetation um, outside. Um, and this this towel was supposedly this was that 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 uh, would be sacrificed in view of this tower. But obviously, the tower is a really fascinating structure because it's a headless structure anyway. So I'm kind of interested in the whole kind of. You know, almost like the imagistic um, resonance of this kind of idea of a headless society, uh, a kind of anarchic society. There's no, there's no, there's no ruler and things like that. And the way that you 
inaugurate a headless society is to cut off the head of the head of the headless, you know, to inaugurate it. So it's very interesting in terms of its kind of kind of almost ceremonial correspondences and 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 and, and uh, you know this kind of uh, imagistic resonance. And that's why I particularly was interested in, especially this broken tower, which is actually very amazing. So if you ever get there, it's, it's well worth a visit. Oh, yeah. It's very. I'm uh, becoming quite the fan of Bataille as well. He's kind of an interesting character in himself, isn't he? He's um, he's almost an occ- almost an occultist in, it, but sort of a, a bit like um, who am I thinking of here? Like a bit like Jung, I suppose, in the sense that he doesn't like to call it occultism or you know esotericism. They he sort of masks it behind psychology, whereas actually what he's talking about feels very much like, uh, especially in like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, have you read? His, he did a journal called Documents, which is really kind of this kind of uh, um, anthropological sort of take on surrealism. Um, very strange man, very kind of very quite disturbed as mm. well. You know, he had a very disturbing upbringing. He did that book uh, about the, is it the Charles de Ray book, didn't he? The, um, yeah, he did, yeah. The Trials of the Shield de Ray. Yeah, yeah, Shield de Ray, yeah. that was it. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah, it. Yeah. And then um, the eroticism book as well, which is the, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the good book. And he wrote an absolutely amazing book of erotic fiction called Story of I. Mm. which is really disturbing, really, really, really like, out there, kind of uh, <laughs> sort of surrealistic sort of version of Marquis de Sade. Um, um, but place, again, like... Did you go to Torrigiani Garden? Um, I did do, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm jealous. Yeah. We didn't, yeah. we've been, I've, I've, I was right next to it. Um, I was on holiday with my partner and she just, I can't remember why, she, did, she wanted to go to um, the fake location of um, uh, Dante's. Uh, house, oh, okay, which okay. isn't actually his house, but uh, <laughs> which, is, which is annoying. But I would much rather have gone there. Um, it's kind of a Masonic theme park, almost, isn't it? You, you, it is, you... yeah, a, a bit like a sort of Quinta de Guerrero in uh, Sintra. But but Torriani is um, now Torriani is now you can only do private visits there. So um, I'm, I'm, you know, I kind of was checking it up, and we got a, we actually got a tour by uh, the old man Torriani, who's an ancestor. They still live there, and he kind of. Uh, this old chap just took us around the garden and showed this this kind of very strange observatory that that, that supposedly has an athena uh, beneath it and um, um, was originally supposed to be uh, this kind of like um, the athena was meant to be a kind of crematorium for the original Torrigiani who who was going to be laid in a in a mausoleum next to this tower. And then his body moved from this mausoleum, and then burnt, and then so the, the smoke would rise and go, you know, sort of, you know, be reborn in, in, in from the tower and things like that. But I think the, the laws in in Florence forbid sort of these sort of private um, uh, cremations, so that never happened. But it's yeah, it's very symbolic that particular area of the garden. There's a yew tree next to it, so very Masonic, you know, in a, in, a, in a sense, you know, in the, in the true tradition of the kind of you know the um, you know, the, the third degree sort of um, light of masonry, I think, there. So I think there's definitely something in that. Um, some of it's, you know, some of it's, you know, the, the, the Statue of Osiris isn't particularly well achieved, but nevertheless, you know, it's the, the symbolism's there. Um, uh, what else? Uh, something else I was going to say about the garden itself, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the kind of, he, he was sort of saying that the, the structure of the tower, um, let me get this right, uh, Square base, octagonal, middle, and 
ground top is sort of Masonic sort of symbolism for various degrees of initiation, uh, things like that. So yeah, it's a, a very interesting trip. Yeah, yeah. And you can have you kind have, of cut off from reality in a weird way. You have a meal at the end, don't you, with the family? Apparently, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's quite well, awkward. Really. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit strange. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, sort of strangely cut from reality in a weird way, you know, very because of this big wall behind it. So, you you know, that's that part of the city isn't particularly busy, but you feel even more cloistered, you know, by this weird aristocratic family that they have this garden business and stuff like this on, you know, but it's, yeah, it's pretty affecting actually. Yeah, yeah. Bit of a side question as we're on in the Italian region at the moment. Um, have you ever been to Damanhur? No, no, oh. is that a witchcraft? No, 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 no. Okay, well, I wasn't sure if you. Um, I want to do a whole episode on this. It's a, oh, yeah. um, it's a, it's kind of hard to explain. It's like uh, the series of temples that were secretly built into the Alps, um, in uh, no, not just north of Turin. Um, but it's. it's I'm going to do a whole episode on it, so I won't dwell on it. I just wondered if you've been there. Do you do with theosophists as well? Slightly, yeah. There's a link to theosophy, and basically. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're still there, uh, and it's this huge community now, and they have these like wow. incredible temples built into this. Uh, you have to go if you ever uh, talk of places you need to go to. Damanhur wow. is the place. I'll send you some photos after, and uh, yes, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's 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 yeah, it's uh, and but the reason one of the other reasons I bring it up is one of the things they believe in is Atlantis, and um, that's oh, right. go. Good, a classic segue there by Ken. I, I, I was going to I was going <laughs> to say I was going to say, Mr. Sharp, you also visited Atlantis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> what was your experience of that? <laughs> was it in season or out of season? I, I actually got I, I think uh, the Atlantis um, section. I, I think I probably was one of the sections I got the most out of because there are like legends and things, including like the, the like for want of a better word, the domestic the domestic version of Atlantis, like more local, like in you know Cornwall and stuff like this, which uh, which I was completely unfamiliar with, and um, so I, I got quite a lot about that and Dion Fortune. I, the the thing was as soon as I read about the sea priestess being set at a particular place near Somerset, isn't it? It's the green down, yeah, green down. Um, and and also I, I you know I got a bit of a frisson when you were saying ah you know if you read the book you can the, there's a road with a sharp bend in it and there's actual locations you can recognize from the from the narrative in the novel i thought oh yes that 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 really intrigued me and uh so atlantis so what's yeah, yeah, what was that like <laughs> atlantis. um which one <laughs> exactly. this is it. This we is actually it. went to it was quite fortunate because we uh, we um, my wife and i went on a sort of delayed honeymoon to santorini which turns out to be atlantis <laughs> or uh, plato's uh um Plato's basis for his uh, his sort of tale of hubris was based on Thera, which is obviously the old Atlantis. And uh, um, yeah, the structure of Atlantis, you know, in 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 Plato is described as sort of concept, these sort of concentric um, isles, islets, really. Um, and that's a, that's a feature of kind of a, a you know volcanic explosion. Um, Went to an Atlantis uh, uh, theme park, which actually had a really, really brilliant diorama, sort of Hornby diorama of Atlantis. I like so I that. I, I, when I read that, I was, th I was thinking, absolutely oh. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was like, thinking, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I probably could have done some camera work and made a probably made a movie out of it or something like that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, yeah. Th I mean, the volcanic islands off off 
the off-theory are actually very beautiful. Um, but um, as I say, as you mentioned, the, 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 the bit that really uh, fascinated me was Dion Fortune's appropriation of um, this uh, near, uh, this Napoleonic um, fortress on uh, Bream Down. Um, and it's, it's a really clever bit of kind of... Uh, almost future occultism, you know, and I, I kind of really like that, you know, and obviously she's seen as quite a traditionalist, but actually it was quite inspired to, to revision this, um, this military complex. And obviously, you know, there was a kind of oil ambience there with kind of coil, because you're not too far from where um, coil ended up. So it's only about six or seven miles from um, well, the Western Supermare. And obviously their their album Sea Priestess and things like that. So you know the, this this whole kind of thing constellated to create something quite atmospheric for me. Um, and I also like the book very much in terms of its kind of um, you know all these kind of um, occult recipes it gives for like time travel. You know, there's various woods in the book that they they burn in order to go to different eras of. Uh, you know, stratas of uh, consciousness and or, or, or eons and stuff like that, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, I like that kind of fictive, um, that fictive sort of appropriation of kind of military, you know, the whole kind of military temples, that kind of thing. It's obviously very, that was kind of more to do with the sort of things I was exploring, the English heretic. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the kind of... Um, um, uh, you know the, the kind of um, you know the, the, the whole kind of Celtic uh, vision of, of Atlantis, uh, but but again you saw you know the, the kind of the mythic drifts really interesting here, where where you know you 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 know you got this kind of um, um, morality, you know, a certain morality associated with with the destruction of of Atlantis in all these kind of tellings which is really interesting and actually i read for the first time that story e by um robert chambers i think it's an absolutely amazing story i was really pretty taken by that you know so i was kind of looking here you know obviously i was having well i wanted to stay clear of the whole kind of nazi sort of um take on atlantis and steer it in a more progressive direction so looking at things like samurai and things like that so keeping you know concentrating on the fictions and the myth seemed a, a way of um you know uh avoiding that kind of treacherous waters if you like yeah and the sea the sea uh and the spirit of the sea is, is something which repeats itself in dion fortune's work i mean in moon magic you've got the uh the the, the sea priestess that you know that's like a it's like a part two, isn't it? And she's yeah, there's an yeah. image of her with like you know walking with you know with a cloak and a, a broad brimmed hat in the in the foggy banks of uh, the Thames. So you've got that that watery element again. And uh, there's like a I can't remember the name of the story, but there's a short story about um, somebody who goes to the sea and um, he he sort of there's like a retreat there. And it I I, I wonder if he, she's using the same location. And there's like an undine or something in the, in the okay. water. Yeah, so yeah, they he it, the, the, there's like a retreat on the, on a cliff. It's it's up above a cliff and it looks directly down onto the sea. Um, oh, it could be a prototype for sea priestess. When, when was it? Yeah, because obviously yeah. 
Yeah, when, yeah, yeah. When you were talking, I was thinking, oh, yeah, that yeah, yeah. surprised me. If that it also looks that the the actual location from I mean from your description and the and the picture, it looks like a very quiet, self-contained. You're not going to have lots of visitors necessarily, or uh, that's the impression I got. Anyways, that it's quite a remote kind of. No, it's very yeah. windswept. Yeah, very yeah. windswept. Yeah, good. That was that was what I was hoping because that's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the yeah. mist coming in and all the rest of it. It looked it looked like um, yeah, it, weirdly it's had a kind of not to the not the same severity, but like a dungeoness kind of very remote. You know, you're you're in a very remote part. Of the, you know, cut off from the hubbub hubbub of the big cities and, and all this. Kind yeah, of uh, plus you are looking, looking. You know, you are looking out to to kind of. It very much is a. You know, this is a natural um, promenade. So you know, it's a, it's a spur essentially, and uh, so it becomes. You know, it's, it is quite. You know, if you think about it, it's quite a ritualistic passage towards the sea in a, in a weird way. Um, but I, the other thing I really find interesting about kind of the sea press is the way the way she she turns it around. So the guy is kind of the oracular sort of sensitive, isn't he? Um, um, and she's lost her knowledge, so she needs this kind of kind of quite um, eph- ephemeral, uh, etheric, ethereal male figure to 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 reawaken it. So it's quite an unusual sort of switch around from the usual situation we have the major students like, you know, this kind of female auricular assistant sort of. Mm. And one of the sort of lingering images that you sort of mentioned it there, like these the bonfires they have on the beaches with the, with the, uh, the, the, the salt encrusted kind of um, branches that would like give off a bluish flame. And so yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I, I, yeah. That, uh, yeah, wonderful depictions of nature uh, and um, an immersion in nature and that kind of thing. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I mean, I, I love time travel fiction anyway. You know, I love obviously things like Burroughs, Cities of the Red Knight, which I touch on in the book. Um, and so I like this kind of, um, you know, those kind of uh, magical time travel. Mm. Um, we should, we, should, we, should, we, should, we should take a, 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 on the hounds of Tinder loss as a sort of Lovecraftian spin off. It's not by Lovecraft, it's Frank Belknap Long. I haven't read that. I haven't oh, read what? that. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, in the hounds of Tinder loss uh, by Frank Belknap Long, who's a kind of student of, of Lovecraft, and um, he's got his own merits without a shadow of a doubt. And um, in the hands of hands hounds of Tinder loss, it's somebody who travels in their mind through time to, to okay. the distant past through hashish, I think. And then um, and at the they go they travel further further back in time to like the you know the misty dawns of the beginning of things. And there's these things there, these creatures there called the hounds of Tinder loss, which then chase him. They hunt him through time to the, oh, right. the here and now. Wow! Wow! Yeah. So yeah. Well, well, are, so. Uh, I mean, that sounds a bit like a William Hope Hodgson as well, doesn't it? House yeah, the yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Oh, which yeah. Is, I think, yeah, an yeah. amazing, absolutely amazing. You know, I love that. Um, oh yeah, totally. Very, very, um, totally, um, yeah. Yeah, very yeah. nightmarish. Very, very claustrophobic and inescapable in a sense. Yeah. I think, we, well, as it's this podcast, I suppose we should probably end on the section about Crowley, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah so. Uh, very um, good. Yeah. So. Let's talk a bit about that. Obviously, it's a infamous um, uh, journey with Crowley and his uh, then lover Victor Neuberg. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about why that ended up in this in this book in particular? 
Um, yeah, I mean, as I said, I split the book in two ways. One was looking at um, various schools of esotericism, so I yeah, said like Tantra, witchcraft, and the other was looking at uh, geographical landscapes. And I've been obsessed with this particular story about Lovecraft and the desert. Um, I can't remember since I first read it in, I think, Francis Francis King book. Um, and, um, yeah, I wanted to explore the desert as a, as a place of um, kind of mirages, uh, illusion, madness, um, a non-place, a place without form. And I think it's, you know, it's infamous, Crowley's, um, so Crowley, for the, for, for the people listening, Crowley and um, Neuberg um, recommenced uh, a set of workings that he had um, originally started in Mexico about 10 years prior to them visiting Sahara. And these were based on 30 calls to the ethers by... Uh, Constructed by Edward Kelly and John Dee. Yeah, the Enochian um, workings. Though. The Enochian workings, yeah. So these these ethers are kind of angels, if you like. So you go through these 30 ethers and call each of the angels and transcribe the visions. And, and he uses a language, Enochian, a scrying mirror or whatever, to... to he, he used the gemstone, didn't he, I think? He did, he, yeah, he, he, he sort of... I mean, the, 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 the interesting thing is that they, they had no... When they went to Algiers, Algeria, they, they just went on a walking holiday as, as lovers, really, and uh, they wanted to just explore the desert under the night sky and things like that. Um, so uh, at some point, Crowley received a kind of voice that said, Re, you know, start these Enochian workings again or recommence these Enochian workings. I think they started at the 28th or 29th when, when the last vision had faded out. And he kind of just sort of, sequestered or he, did he 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 had a crucifix and then he he had a gemstone and he kind of made made it in i think he kind of fashioned it into a scrying mirror so um so i think if there's something there's something very genuine about this kind of vision that that that, 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 that this didn't feel contrived that crowley wasn't trying to contrive some sort of um some sort of experience. And I think that's where his stuff's most interesting, where, you know, that he's following a, a compulsion. Um, so I'm very interested in it from the fact that, you know, it was this thing that suddenly happened where they weren't expecting it to. So he then followed each of these workings through the desert from, um, or oh, where was it, from uh, Busada to Biskra, so over two or three weeks. Um, and they'd call each of these Enochian spirits at different locations. Um, and I, I think the visions are very interesting. I think that the, the thing is quite significant that this kind of ruby sort of um, gem, because they're quite fiery, the visions they have in the early, in the early sections. And you can see this kind of meld between what they're seeing in the mirror and, 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 the, and the landscape itself. Um, and, uh, um, the other thing that really interests me is 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 this kind of um, I think it was um, quite a radical ahead of its time form of occult psychogeography. So he was taking one form of magic and performing it in a completely different terrain from where it might have been originally 
uh, envi- visualized to be, you know, because it was formed at Mortlake, I think, wasn't it? So in, in London, but he took it into the desert and he sort of synthesized this kind of Baroque form of uh, angelic magic and then put it out in the desert. And that seems to me a kind of sort of thing that you would do as a kind of radical occult psychogeographer really to kind of synthesize a new occult terrain. And I think that's really, people often miss the fact that it was very ahead of its time in terms of, you know, creating a new occult landscape. And so I, you know, so cut to the, cut to the chase. Um, they, um, they decide to form sex magic for the first time, I think, uh, um, because they feel they need to make a sacrifice. And, and, and rather than, you know, sacrifice an animal, Crowley sacrifices his, himself, really. So they, so Neuburg forms sodomy on Crowley and, and that becomes this kind of, this kind of, thing that accelerates the whole kind of process so they 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 they're they're transcending their own kind of christian christian taboos and things like that and 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 liberate themselves from their previous lives and things like that anyway at the 10th ether they come to this demon called corazon the demon of dispersion have this, this this quite intense amazing astral battle with this 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 shape-shifting form that's moving through Crowley, you know, sacrifice some pigeons into a blood sacrifice. So it's kind of feeding on this blood and and, and it's trying to jump out the, 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 the circle and, 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 and attack Neuburg. So it's a classic sort of stuff you saw, you know, it's really influential in the things like, obviously things like Devil Rides Out, you know, and those sort of things where, where some demon is sort of, uh, you know, jumping out of this kind of protective circle and shape-shifting and things like that. So it had a huge sort of uh, occultural influence on, on kind of our notions of a, of a, like an occult battle, really, in, in kind of, um, in, in culture, really. But um, I think it's, I think it's really interesting as a, as a, as a, as a sort of whole cultural sort of phenomenon itself, this idea of this, this, this demon called Corinzon, um, and in 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 the in the deeper chapter, I look at the kind of um, the immediate ramifications of, of of this 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 manifestation of of of, of a, a very sort of uh, apocalyptic demon in the twentieth century, really. So you've got Corin's on that that you see in <clears throat> uh, you see in the work of uh, Jack Parsons, who kind of um, did a similar back. Black pilgrimage and went to Corazane, where he made some assumption related to Corazon. When Corazane is where the Antichrist was supposed to be born in, in according to sort of apocrypha. <clears throat> so I mean, there was an immediate effect into in our culture, and then there was like these kind of like um, kind of homoerotic sort of um, uh, takes on uh, on tantra exclusively homo homosexual sort of um organizations one called the Corinthian club that were kind of very radical because they were sort of challenging the whole idea of like um uh heterosexual sex as being the only form of tantra and things like that so that's very interesting and then you've got chaos magics uh using kind of a cult of Corinthian in a way um Peter Carroll doing the mass of Corinzon, which is a kind of like anarchic anti sort of 
calling of the holy guardian angel. So again, kind of very, very uh, chaotic and very uh, anarchic. And then finally, I look at uh, I look a bit of Grant's use of it in this very strange ways, where he was sort of fusing um, uh, this dagger that supposedly was used to sacrifice these pigeons, and then it gets stolen in this Lovecraft you know, ritual and stuff like that. You know, so again, but but if you look at the bigger picture, what you hear is we're seeing like synthesis, a wild synthesis of different kind of strains of magic and. And fiction things like that. And finally, I end up looking at um, William Burroughs' *The City of the Red Knight*, which, uh, which um, increasingly to me seems like a, a magical text. And at the beginning of um, *City of the Red Knight*, he makes a dedication to to Lord Pazuzu and all these kind of various forms of uh, uh, pestilent demons. And he doesn't mention Corinzon, but he, I think, he says something very similar to a demon of dispersion, which is very interesting because I don't think I don't see anywhere in Burroughs' writing that he was referencing um, uh, Burroughs uh, Crowley's working, but I, I think that Burroughs is is tapping into exactly the same the same energies here. Um, so in another way, I look at also the the kind of tradition of you know desert desert madness as well. The idea of the Majun, um, the the kind of the holy madman of the desert. Um, um, which was, which was what um, the Mad Arab in in uh, Lovecraft was, and he, yeah, who wrote the Necronomicon based on his journey in the desert, his mad journey. So yeah, it's a very, it's a it's a chapter that you know it's been in my head for many many years really, um, and I touched it on the end of the English Heretic, but I was I was glad to get that in because um, I think that was probably the chapter that's closest to. Uh, the wrote itself really because it's been in my head for many many years these, these kind of connections i was really intrigued by the the burrows material so it's like segueing in I've, I, I didn't make that connection before and i've not read that particular book cities of the red night yeah yeah so yeah so that's another one i <laughs> i i would like to explore definitely and it's like a yeah as you say it's a it's a I mean, Crowley did a number of magical retirements in his life, quite a few, and usually they take place, you know, in a in an you know in like a, a hut or something like that on Aesop's Island or something like that. Is in a sort of quite a domestic situation, but he's he's going into the desert. The it's going uh, a place where there's a lack of stimulation. It's that's that in that desert environment, you know, there's a you're understimulated, and so this this. Um, propensity to sort of go within is 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 being facilitated by the the bleakness of the environment um yeah absolutely and this is a quite important thing about you know because um um i quote i can't remember is it joel or i can't remember his surname uh, chaos um one of the chaos magician guys berwick berwick who who, who kind of says that corinzon is, is 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 everything and nothing it's like it's 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 all your illusions coming, you know, manifesting, but they disperse at the moment of manifestation because everything is everything is illusion and things like that, you know. So this is the really interesting thing is uh, the kind of corns on on the in the, you know, when when Crowley's overlaying um, the Kabbalistic tree of life with. Um, with his Enochian workings, he directly sees Corrin's on as mapping to Darth, the kind of empty um, false sephirah, 
So I think it's really uh, exactly the same, Mark. You know, again, it's this really inspired decision to use the desert as this access to, you know, the other side through through uh, the numinous through through the void, really. Um, um, And again, you know, Grant obviously threw himself into the void post Crowley and things like that. But also, you know, um, Burroughs is City of the Red Knight. Basically what happens is a meteorite hits these seven cities and creates this kind of like plague, essentially. Um, so so Burroughs kind of envisaged this this kind of void as well, this great big crater caused by this this uh, this interplanetary event. But the other thing the other really thing, interesting thing about City of the Red Knight is that he based it on this ritual from the Picatrix that Brian Gleison t- um, taught him, which was to talk uh, to, to recite these four names, which become his six, seven, six cities in the Red Knight, whatever. Um, but they're meant to be recited before you sleep, and, and, and they and they give you the power of lucid dreams. Um, and if you read um, City of the Red Knight, it's quite clear that a lot of the chapters are, are composed from really, really pretty powerful lucid dreams. Hmm. Isn't isn't the translation of the the kind of the, the, letter, the, the six words something like as you go to sleep say your invocation and have yeah that's exactly what they are yeah it yeah, sounds like are. an instruction <laughs> it sounds like an like, it is yeah. yeah it's like that kind of in between place that the, the liminal space between sleeping and waking do the you know do, yeah you know, absolutely yeah. yeah suggestibility isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. but i think yeah, Burroughs' genius is to turn it into this kind of you know this massive episodic sort of event you know and that's the power of kind of his imagination really um but you know i think you know more and more you know i'm interested in burrows as as, as a magician really you know um, mm. and these books were these you know these, these you know there was so much magic involved in them mm. especially mm. Night. Mm. um books are like doors and one door leads to another and that's a yeah, that's absolutely. a door i want to go through now so. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you mr sharp <laughs> Anyway, that's a good. I think that's a good time to uh, to call it a day. If um, people want to find you online, where where should they look? Oh, uh, Instagram. So I'm on Instagram. I still got my English heretic or English dot heretic, and there's a National Geographic sort of promo account. But yeah, usual place English heretic. Uh, still got a website, but you know most people just Instagram these days. So. Um, yeah, further projects will probably just I'll just use that name rather than lots of different accounts. So uh, that's, that, that brings on the next question: of What's next? Okay, so uh, I'm I'm back to writing, finishing off a book for Repeater called tentatively called Enter the Cineplasm, um, and it's a kind of uh, um, you know, a, very much an English heretic. Uh, vein looking at cinema and reality and it's often deleterious effects in reality um so looking at um uh, things like jane arden's other side of underneath herostratus um curses um you know uh you know the the kind of wild story that you get in english heretic very much a a kind of metafiction but yeah yeah but uh, particularly through the lens of cinema um, so that's 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 the book I'm working on that I'm hoping to get to the, the publisher for for October, uh, August, and that might be out next year. So that's the main thing I'm working on at the moment. 
Excellent. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, I'm oh, sure we'll have you on again soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should try and hire me up soon. Yeah, yeah, meet up again soon. But anyway, yeah, so thanks again and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. And we're back. How did uh, how, how was that for you, Mr. Satir? Great, yes. It was good to uh, see and uh, speak to Mr. Sharp again. And um, and and we got a bit more extra information, which which mattered more to me, you know, than anything else probably of his actual experience of these places and you know the lived reality, going from the the page to the to the, the sensual world, corner phrase. But uh, that uh, I think that's the most most valuable thing we could offer. Yeah, and uh, it's um, you know obviously he's restricted somewhat by a word count, so it's quite nice to be able to crack some of those experiences open isn't it and sort of uh, get his, his point of it's view it's a very comprehensive book oh yeah yeah it's very good it's um it's you know it, for some it will kind of cover it will it will tread ground you already know but for um but it does go to places that we hadn't heard of before which was uh, exactly i mean the, the 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 like i was saying the atlantis section that that particularly opened my eyes to new things and um and, and uh, stuff i want to explore as well including locations uh, I didn't even know about, and um, I'm, I will, you know, hopefully be setting myself in those attractions. I see some sitting now field trips in our in our future. Well, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Get out of it. Get out of it. Once this weather turns to a bit spring more manageable. The equinox. The spring equinox. Yeah. Once the spring equinox happens, we'll uh, we'll do some sitting now field trips and take cameras with us and uh, and record them for you. Uh, anyway, we will be back next week. And uh, don't forget to, that we have a Patreon now. If you want extra stuff from us, you want to interact with us a bit more, um, suggest stuff to us. You know, I'm always interested in in what you're interested in uh, you know you the listener what are you interested in what do you want us to cover you know we're uh, we're quite good at getting people on the show so uh, you know if there's a, a you know particular guest you've always wanted to you know us to grill if you want to suggest more mark as well you please do <laughs> <laughs> i'm uh, just putting it out <laughs> I, can, I can see the uh, inbox flooding flooding with uh... <laughs> i'm just i'm planting a seed so <laughs> Anyway, uh, we will see you next time and thanks for listening.